personal views and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are their own and are not legal advice or official statements by their organizations. Hello, my name is Debbie Reynolds, and this is the Data Diva Talks Privacy Podcast, where we discuss data privacy issues with industry leaders around the world for the information that businesses need to know right now. Today, I have a special guest on the show. Her name is Carissa Velez. She is the Associate Professor at the Faculty of Philosophy and the Institute for Ethics and AI, as well as a Tutorial Fellow at Hertford College at the University of Oxford. Ms. Velez has published articles in The Guardian, The New York Times, New Statesman, and The Independent. My introduction to Carissa had to do with an article that she had written in the Guardian newspaper in 2020 related to data havens. And I was fascinated by this topic and I contacted her and she was really gracious to uh, to agree to do this interview after she published her book, which was published in 2020. Uh, the name of the book is Privacy, and Pow- Privacy is Power. Uh, it was a economist best book of the year. Uh, which provides philosophical perspective on the politics of privacy, as well as very practical solutions, both for policymakers and ordinary citizens. Welcome, Carissa, to the show. Thank you so much. I followed your career uh, quite closely. I uh, got... um, my first introduction to you was a really stunning article that I had read that you had written in um, the Guardian uh, newspaper that I saw in the U.S. about data havens. Yes, data havens. So I thought the topic was really fascinating. But uh, before we even get into that, I would love for you to say a few words to introduce yourselves to the audience. You pretty much got it covered. Um, I am doing research on digital ethics more generally, specifically the ethics of AI, and in particular privacy for a few years. And I wrote my dissertation on the ethics and politics of privacy. And I was writing an academic book about the topic. And then the more I read about it and the more I researched, I got more and more alarmed about the state of our privacy. And I thought this is just too urgent and too important to just write an academic book about it that only a few experts will read. So I decided to write a very accessible book called Privacy is Power that was published in the UK last year. And this year uh, in April is going to be published in the US. Yeah, and it's been very well received. So The Economist uh, wrote that it was one of the top books released last year. So congratulations to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Well, yeah, let's get into this data haven. concept. This was fascinating. And as soon as I read it, I sent you a message on LinkedIn. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your concept and your theory? I thought it was fascinating. Thank you. I wrote this article as a response to many messages from the UK government that seemed to suggest that they want to take the opportunity of Brexit to further liberalize personal data. And they are writing about personal data as something that is an opportunity, that we shouldn't see it as a risk or as a threat, that we should um, take the opportunity to exploit it and uh, for the purposes of business and and government. And I found this rhetoric a bit concerning. 
it was vague, so you can only speculate about what their plans are. But something that occurred to me is that the UK and other countries, this is not particular to the UK, could use data as an opportunity essentially to earn money fast and easy without thinking enough about the possible consequences, dangers, and especially the ethics of it. And the article argued that just like there are tax havens, and these are companies that agree to not charge taxes to companies so that they are attracted to those countries, um, there can be data havens. And these would be countries that allow companies to collect data or to manage data in very ethically questionable ways in return for money. And then for those companies to produce some kind of product that on the face of it seems acceptable. But when you look a little bit uh, beyond that, you realize that it it has been done with data that shouldn't have been uh, collected or or shouldn't have been managed in a certain way. Yeah. And what do you think, so this is actually a great opportunity to ask you this. So that article came out before Brexit. So now after Brexit, what are you seeing and what are you thinking? Yeah, I I think I was right. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Recently, there has been an article written in the Financial Times by uh, the Secretary of Digital Matters. I I forget exactly what his title is. And again, he, he reiterated the same idea that data shouldn't be thought of as a threat, but as a fantastic opportunity. And I just fear that just like we have money laundering, we we could have something like data data laundering um, in the UK, and and that would be a very bad idea. It would be very bad for reputational uh, reasons. It would be very bad because I don't think people realize the extent to which personal data can be a threat to, to national security, to equality, to democracy, and it's something that we should be very alert about. Yeah. And what do you think about, you know, when I'm thinking about data and I'm seeing who has data and who doesn't, you know, I feel like there is a new caste system being created in the world uh, based on who has the data, who doesn't, uh, you know, who has insights, who doesn't have insights. What is your thought about that? I think that's true, and that's part of why I titled my book Privacy is Power. In the digital age, power is all about data, and whoever has the data has the power. And there is a class system not only respecting uh, which countries have more data than others, but also which companies have more data than other companies and how they use it. And furthermore, there's a class system in whose data gets mined for this and who bears the worst of the brunt of it. And typically it's people who are worse off. Typically it's people who need welfare, who um, who have already been discriminated against. These are the people whose data is more at risk and these are the people who are more, more hurt when things go wrong. Yeah. And what do you think uh, uh, that people, people who read your book, what would you like them to take away from that in terms of their own you know, what What can I do as an individual or what can I do, you know, to protect myself better in this uh, digital age? One idea that I would really like people to take away is that privacy is not important only if you've done something wrong or only if you're particularly shy or only in particular circumstances. Privacy is a matter of power and it's 
never a good idea to give either companies or government too much power because power typically gets abused. So another idea that I would really like people to take home is that privacy is a collective matter. It's not about you, or at least it's not only about you. And when you share your data, you're actually sharing data about other people who have not consented to that and who might suffer from it. There are many cases that we can use to illustrate. One very straightforward case is if you donate your genetic data, then you're donating data about your parents, your siblings, your children, um, your very distant cousins who could get deported or who could get uh, um, insurance denied, and they didn't consent to that. But another example is just the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And that really showed how only 270,000 people gave their data to Cambridge Analytica. But with that data, the firm accessed the data of 87 million people. And with that data, they created a tool to try to sway elections around the world. Right. Yeah, I think, um, uh, you know, all of us hear some people say, you know, I have nothing to hide and they don't really understand. It's not about hiding. It's about being able to have uh, agency over your information, right? Exactly. Whenever somebody knows too much about you, they can have a lot of power over you. They can interfere with your plans. They can try to um, modify your behavior. They can exploit your vulnerabilities. They can discriminate against you. Uh, they can humiliate you. It just gives them the, the upper hand, essentially. And what we can do as individuals varies a lot. And it depends on who you are and uh, who you're trying to protect yourself from and so on. But in general, there's a lot we can do by just choosing the right products. Instead of using Google search, use DuckDuckGo that doesn't um, collect your data. Instead of using WhatsApp, use Signal. These products are very good. They're just as good and, and they're free and, and they don't collect your data. And that creates a, an incredible amount of pressure on companies to improve their privacy settings. And that matters a lot. Furthermore, we have to do things in politics. So we have to pressure our political representatives and tell them how much we care about privacy and ask them what they're doing to protect it. Right. That's a good idea. The I was surprised when uh, the WhatsApp uh, privacy policy was changed that so many people were up in an uproar about that. And they, you know, some people obviously changed to a different, you know, me uh, messaging app and things like that. Uh, I was actually happy to see that because I think the conventional wisdom has been that people don't really care about privacy. At least that's been the conventional wisdom in the U.S. And I never thought that was true, but to see people kind of collectively react to that, to that level of transparency and understanding that they do have choices, at least in the U.S. they do. Uh, I thought that was actually a good step. Yeah, exactly my thoughts. I, I was very excited to see that people are becoming more and more aware of how companies like Facebook are collecting their data and are becoming somewhat aware of the kind of risks that that uh, entails. And more importantly, they're becoming aware that that's not necessary, that there are other companies that do just as good as a job or even better and that don't collect your data. So why would you choose a company that puts you at risk when you have other alternatives? And, and that's great to see. And it also shows how even though big tech seems so big and so powerful, and they are, really their domain is kind of it's, it's, uh, based on a house of cards and it depends completely on us. If mm -hmm. we rebel, 
if we reject their business model, it's not going to last for long. Yeah. What is your thought about inference? So this is something that I like to talk about as well. So you gave the example, which is totally true about Cambridge Analytica, how they just got data of, you know, a small number of people and were able to get the friends of friends and get millions of people's data. But a lot of times when people, let's say you're out on the internet and you're doing different things, these companies can infer things about the people that you know, the people that are around you, like you said, that you didn't like consent uh, to that information. So I think, uh, and also another uh, issue with inference is that it's not always true, right? So if that information is being used against you, let's say in employment or some other uh, context, if that's not uh, transparent to you, that could definitely harm you. Definitely. The first concern is that inferences can be wrong, as you mentioned. So, for instance, a prospective employer might calculate that you have, I don't know, what, a 60% chance of having diabetes or a 70% chance that you're a smoker or whatever it is. And you might be treated as if that's 100% sure and it's not. And you actually don't have diabetes and you actually don't smoke. And you might be treated as if you did. Uh, Furthermore, inferences are very dangerous because this is data that you don't give up voluntarily. It can include any kinds of things. So for instance, your life expectancy can be calculated from how fast you walk when you're carrying your your mobile phone, or your cognitive capacities can be calculated by how you slide your finger uh, when you go through your contacts. And this is not information that you're giving up voluntarily. And it can be used in ways to discriminate against you, even when that data shouldn't be used at all. So say the data about your health. Um, Prospective employers shouldn't even have that data. So the fact that they can infer it is really worrisome because it's very hard to police. So, you know, your prospective employer can say, well, we didn't hire you because it was a better candidate. And how are you going to know that it wasn't because they try to infer your health status from your data? Uh, So that's very problematic. Furthermore, there's this idea that, well, because inferences are probabilistic, then it's not a privacy violation. It's just like something that anybody has a right to try to figure out the world and try to make inferences and try to calculate probabilities. But what's problematic is that we are being treated as if it was private information. And if we, for instance, have a very rigorous law about medical data and your doctor cannot give your data away to companies or insurance um, or prospective employers, then why should we allow an algorithm to try to figure out whether you have cancer? And let's say the algorithm is 95% accurate. Um, why should we allow that? It doesn't seem to be very different. And definitely the consequences for your own life are not different. So we should think about in- sensitive in- inferences just as we think about personal data. Yeah. How do you feel that COVID has impacted the privacy dialogue or conversation? In general, COVID has been a great challenge to privacy. From the start, the the very first reaction from big tech was, oh, yeah, we're going to create an app and this is going to take care of it. Right. Now, it it didn't (laughs) work out that way. And there were very good reasons to think that it wouldn't work out that way. Um, We've also been hijacked more and more by tech. Before COVID, there was the illusion that 
all our interactions with tech were voluntary, that if you didn't want to, you could just not do it. Of course, that was always questionable because you want to be an active participant in your society and you want a job and you want to be in touch with your family and so on. But with COVID, that became really, really evident how we don't have a choice. And if you want an education, you want a job, you want to communicate with others, you do have to uh, use tech. And that means that what we considered consent or uh, a voluntary action is now evident that it's not so voluntary and, and not kind of meaningful consent. So in some ways, COVID has become a threat, um, also because we have been using tech a lot more. But on the other hand, it has made evident some things that weren't as evident to many people. And I think people are becoming more aware of their vulnerability to tech. And, th and that is a good thing. Something that I'm very excited about now is that there's more and more talk in the United States about uh, federal or a national privacy law. And I think that that is very healthy. That's something that five years ago was kind of almost unimaginable. Mm -hmm. And we have to acknowledge progress when it happens, even yeah. even if it's a, it's a great challenge still. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, uh, as you can see in the U.S., uh, states are rapidly passing all these new laws. And it's just making the privacy landscape in the U.S. much more complicated. Uh, so I, a lot of us, I don't know anyone who doesn't want some type of federal legislation that at least harmonizes some of this stuff. Because from state to state, for example, they have, may have different definitions of what is personal data or what is sensitive data or what how that data is combined in some way. I think that's interesting. Uh, what are your thoughts about um, cookies and the, the the new announcement that Google is going to start using this flock, which is kind of like this federated um, ID to to categorize groups of people? I'm quite skeptic. I think Google's announcement sounds great. Oh yeah, no more cookies. That's amazing because you know cookies are trackers. Mm -hmm. But in fact, what they're proposing to do sounds a lot like tracking people yeah. in a different way. And so one question is, okay, is Google really taking privacy more seriously or are they taking the opportunity once again, like many other companies to, um, to do some good marketing and then be <clears throat> at the, <clears throat> sorry, at the cutting edge of um, tracking personal data. So when you read the description, it just seems like, okay, they're going to, Put people in, in different groups according to their interest but those groups can still be quite sensitive and then the comeback is like well but we're, we're going to audit these groups and then we're going to check and if you know if for instance there's a group that's too small we'll bunch it up with other groups and we will make sure that the algorithm is not tracking any kind of sensitive category but then first it seems like a titanic task like right. how are they going to audit this and secondly it means like while they're auditing it then um surely they are coming up with personal information and they're like checking if they're things are tracking like um algorithms are tracking things like gender so they have to know people's gender and it just seems very unclear to me how this is a solution and something that will be overall good for privacy furthermore google's business model hasn't changed it still right. earns most of its money from targeted ads. Yeah. And it's not as though Google doesn't know who, who you are. So even if they do a federated grouping, 
they still know who you are. And then, and then to people aren't, people are unique and they don't change a lot. So it's, I don't think it's that hard to re-identify people, which is a whole different other topic. <laughs> exactly. There are many details like that. For instance, for some websites, okay, so the website is only going to uh, get information about which federated group you're in, but actually that web, to, to access that website, you have to log in through your Google account. So right. that's going to identify you. So there are all kinds of details that just make me think that this, this is not as good as it sounds. Yeah, I think in the U.S., so my feeling uh, about just how I'm interacting with people in Europe, you know, obviously people in the U.S., the idea about privacy is very different. I like to say that uh, people in the U.S., so the way that people in Europe feel about privacy is the same way that people in the U.S. feel about freedom of speech. So it's that de- definite sort of deep, fervent belief in those things. And for the U.S., I think, especially for these big tech companies, um, in order for privacy to be a uh, remain a C-suite issue, it has to be something that hits bottom line. So not just with fines, but the movement of people having more choice and deciding, you know, voting with their pocketbook or voting with their data that they're only going to share data with certain companies. So I think being able to have a situation where uh, companies are seeing people, just like you said, be more empowered to to stand up and decide, you know, I don't think that this is right. I want to do something different. I think in the U.S., that'll definitely move the needle because I know the companies are very concerned about having uh, customers and having customers trust. So the first thing to say is that I'm, I'm slightly skeptic that there's such a huge difference between how we think about privacy in Europe and in the U.S. I think those differences are more super, superficial than, than they appear. Of course, our, our laws are different. But the U.S. is thinking about privacy and, and for instance, the new um, privacy laws in very similar um, terms and, in, and very similar policies. And furthermore, when you just ask people, hey, do you think it's OK for a data broker to um, to know whether somebody has been the victim of a rape and then sell that sell that information for, for profit? Most people say no. It doesn't right. matter, you know, <laughs> whether, they're, whether they're American or, or European. Um, the second thing to say is that, yes, I think uh, we need to tackle the bottom line of, of companies. And yes, it's very important what people do, and it's going to matter a lot. But at the end of the day, we need to regulate these companies. It's not, first of all, it's not fair to put all the burden on the shoulders of individuals. Mm-hmm. And secondly, it's not enough because many times when we talk about privacy and cybersecurity, these are very abstract terms and very invisible to us. So I know more or less roughly, I think, what a safe door looks like. Um, But if you give me an app and if you ask me, is that app safe? I have no idea, not the least idea. And just like when I get on a plane, I don't need to be an engineer to trust that the plane is more or less safe. I want to download an app and know that there are just things that nobody can do with my personal data because they're just too risky for myself and for society. So I don't think we can do away with regulation. But yes, individuals are going to be very important to to create that pressure so that that happens. And by choosing the right companies, they can um, have a huge effect. And also, individuals can have a huge effect in motivating companies to change their business model to a business model that doesn't depend on exploiting our personal data. 
Right. I love to talk with you about ethics and AI. This is a topic that I'm fascinated with. And I love to talk with people about this because I don't know when you re- when you look at movies about the future, it's always the evil robot that does all these, you know, crazy, wacky things. Uh, but I think, you know, and you tell me what your thoughts are. I'm thinking that the human has to bring the ethics to artificial intelligence. It's a very complicated topic and there's no easy answer. I think that, of course, there are concerns about the safety of AI and uh, how we align the, its values with ours and so on and so forth. But sometimes I get, we, I think we get distracted by these apocalyptic visions and yes. very far away in the future. <laughs> And we forget that AI is being a huge problem today. It's just right. causing huge inequalities and huge injustices, and we're not handling it very well. So I'm more concerned with that immediate um, problem that is AI. And for that, I think definitely the ethics is on us. Today, at least, AI is a tool, and we are the people who are designing it, implementing it, allowing it, um, auditing it or not auditing it. And we are responsible for the tools we create. Yeah. I, you know, obviously I know people like you who are in AI that um, that focus here and also want to do things like audits. But do you think this is going to become more common or more regulated uh, in terms of how people are using artificial intelligence and then the transparency part of it? Definitely. It's just a matter of time. Uh, something I, I, I often mention is how, our ancestors regulated their giants. Uh, first it was the rail ro- railroads, then cars, airplanes, drugs, food, you name it. It's our turn to regulate our, our giants. And at the moment, it's truly a free-for-all. I mean, at the moment, you can pretty much use any data to um, train any algorithm to do anything and implement it without no auditing whatsoever and, and no rules. And that's just ridiculous. That, that just can't go on. Um, for instance, with pharmaceuticals, we would never allow to, a drug to go out into the world without, without it being tested, not even in, in really extreme situations like COVID. Did we allow a vaccine to, be, to go out in the US or, or, or in the UK or in Europe without having uh, rigorous testing on, of it? And yet we do that with algorithms all the time. And algorithms in many ways can be just as powerful or more than the most powerful drug you can possibly imagine. And that's just wrong. Right. Yeah, I feel like a lot of these struggles in terms of communicating this to individuals is that, like you said, it seems invisible. So it's not like a tangible thing that you can touch or feel or see. So a lot of times people think just because I can't touch or see or feel it, it may not harm me you know, in the same way. Um, I love your thoughts about bias. Uh, you know, obviously bias is a huge umbrella of things, but me being a, a woman of color, I'm very concerned about um, artificial intelligence or uh, applications of artificial intelligence that may create bias for uh, people of different skin tones or races or color or, you know, gender or anything. I'm really concerned about that too. I think many times there isn't a bad intention behind these algorithms, but the way they have behaved and the way things have uh, unraveled 
I fear that in, in many cases we are discriminating just as bad as we did in the past. Mm-hmm. But now we have the excuse that, well, it wasn't us. It was the algorithm and we, we didn't mean it and we didn't even know it was happening. And that to a certain degree it is true, but it doesn't justify it at all. Right. Because it is our responsibility to create equality in our societies. And it doesn't matter if you don't want to be a racist or a sexist. If uh, your algorithm is having those effects, it's just as bad. And it's hurting uh, people just as badly. So one of the things that I worry about of using personal data so much in general is that we are not being treated as equal citizens anymore. We are being treated on the basis of our data. And in many cases, that includes information that shouldn't be included and it shouldn't be taken into account, whether we're a man or a woman, uh, black or white, uh, whether we live in one part of the country or another, whether we have a Mac or uh, Windows, uh, and so many other things that are taken into account to essentially treat us differently when we should be treated the same. Yeah, that's one thing I try to talk to people about a lot of times, because I think when you're on the internet and doing different things, people have the impression that you and I are seeing the same things and we're not. So the information that gets fed to us is based on who they think we are, who they think what we what they think we like and a lot of times I try to say it's sort of like the internet the internet gives you the impression like you're in a library and you have access to everything but actually you're only in in a section of the library (laughs) and you're not you really aren't seeing anything unless you you know actively do something to actually break out of that mold that's absolutely right. A family member often tells me, hey, did you see that ad that was on your Twitter? And I'm like, no, no, no. You're seeing that ad because it's you. I don't <laughs> see that ad when I'm right. Um, and I think it's, it very much, much goes against human psychology to mm-hmm. realize that what you're seeing out there is not a reflection of reality, it's a reflection of who companies think you are. And that is a, a really unnatural concept and goes back to what we were talking about, how um, data is not transparent and it's very abstract and difficult to understand. Yeah. Like I haven't had an example of like women. So women and men over 50 looking for executive jobs. There are certain jobs that men over 50 will see and women over 50 won't see. So it gives them the, the women, the impression that there aren't jobs, executive jobs for them. And it gives men the impression that, you know, I don't know why women are complaining because there are all these jobs. Exactly. And that same phenomenon can, can be generalized to so many topics. Many times when we talk about politics, uh, you know, somebody's thinking, you know, the other person is just crazy or they're stupid. And mm-hmm. it's not that. It's just they're seeing a reality that's completely different from the reality you're seeing on your screen. Yeah. I, you know, I always like to bring up the whole evil robot uh um, concept because I think that concept sort of hurts a- AI and the way people think about it because in a way a lot of these dystopian movies are like you know uh, the robot took over and I have no control but to me that's just a way to, to abdicate responsibility because <laughs> humans should control uh, AI AI shouldn't control humans yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I understand the concern uh, from the point of view of computer scientists and, and other people who think that we may create something 
that is beyond our control. Um, and this is a very old thought. I mean, of course, we think of Frankenstein, but it goes even uh, before then to, to Greek myths, myths. So this is a very old concept. But something that's striking is that right now we can control AI and we're not controlling it. So really, it should kind of wake us up to the issues that we're having that have much to do with good governance and politics and uh, really how we organize society than with technology. And this is something I find very often. Whenever there's a problem, there's an instinct to say, well, we should invest in technology and invest in science. And we forget that if we don't invest in training people in the humanities and learning good governance, we can have the best cutting edge uh, tech that you can possibly imagine and it will be destructive. Because without good governance, there is no good tech. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great, great quote. I'm gonna quote you on that. (laughs) I think that's true. I think that's true. What threats do you see in the future that you feel like people aren't really taking seriously enough? Um, I'll just give you an example, like um, uh, things like facial recognition or biometrics concern me deeply, especially because I feel like the harm can be so catastrophic and immediate. And there isn't really, in my opinion, if someone is damaged by those things, there probably isn't any reasonable redress. I agree with you. Any kind of technology that fundamentally deprives people of anonymity by default is very dangerous. And I think that the possibility of being somewhat anonymous, for instance, just to protest on the street is very important for democracy and it's very important for freedom. And we are developing all these tools to deprive people of anonymity, like uh, what, what is it called? Um, gate, uh, uh, recognition gate recognition yeah. and heartbeat recognition. And all these, I think, are incredibly dangerous. And I, I fear that we'll, we're building the perfect structure for an authoritarian regime that will, it will be almost impossible to to get rid of because as soon as we start thinking about organizing uh, and we're messaging each other we're, we're already um the we can be the victim of, of this authoritarian regime so i worry a lot about that and on the flip side i think it's a moment to be optimistic and but but there, there's a lot at stake so something i would like to encourage us to think about is how much the us and europe needs each other right now we need mm-hmm. to go back to that old alliance that we had and um, come together and come to an agreement about how do we deal with data, how do we deal with AI, how do we deal with cybersecurity? Because we have really important adversaries who are very good in these topics mm-hmm. and who are a real threat uh, for freedom and democracy in the future. Yeah, I think we have to change from, I don't know your thoughts. This is my feeling about in the U.S. So many many things are reactive as opposed to being proactive. So a lot of laws that get enacted are based on a harm that's happened in the past. And then we create this law. Even a lot of laws are, you know, about precedent and about the past, not really about the future. So I feel like in order for us to really get ahead of this, we have to be more proactive. I think that is part of the value of ethics. Ethics is about having a group of people who are sitting around a table and discussing how this might go wrong, essentially. And many times in tech, we've seen that there's too much optimism. People in tech, I think, truly build something thinking that it's going to be used for for bettering society. 
And they forget that technology almost always has different uses and it almost never is used only uh, for the best purpose it, it can be used for. And nobody is there sitting around thinking, okay, this is what can go right, but okay, what, what can go wrong and how can we prevent that from happening? And that is very much the role of ethics. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that one. Uh, so I love to ask people this question. So. Uh, Carissa, if it was the world according to you and we would do everything that you say, what would be your wish for privacy in the future, either uh, in the EU or anywhere around the world? To end the data economy. It's totally unacceptable to sell and buy personal data. It creates very toxic incentives to sell the data, to, to collect a lot of data and then sell it to the highest bidder, who often is not somebody who has the best interests in mind. And I think that while it can sound radical to end the data economy because we've come used to it, really, when you think about it, what's radical and extreme is to have a business model that depends on the systematic and mass violation of rights. That's unacceptable. Yeah. Do you think we'll ever have anonymity again? I miss that, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think we will recover some of it. I, I definitely hope to recover it on the streets. I think it's very important for protest. And online, I have a paper that's open access called Online Masquerade, in which I argue for a system of pseudonymity and how, for most of history, people wrote under pseudonyms or uh, anonymously. And if we hadn't allowed for that, we would have missed out on a lot of great works. For instance, John Locke and uh, Kierkegaard and many other philosophers. And I think we have to recover some of that. Wow, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. This is uh, fantastic. And we're definitely going to follow, you know, your your book and your work. And I, you know, love to support anything that you're working on because there are so few people talking about these issues in the way that you're talking about. And I think that this is going to really move the, the needle internationally to have people having these conversations. Thank you so much for the invitation, Gregory. It's been really interesting and fun. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thanks.